Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you, um, you got these guys out of bed and that they chose to come and worship you this morning. And God, that I, I pray that they um, would be blessed, that you would speak to them, Jesus, that you would transform our hearts. Thank you for Mike flying all the way out here from Ohio. And um, I just pray that you use him. Let us receive your word this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. So many of you guys know Mike. He used to be a pastor here. And I, I think they know you because they're clapping. But, uh, we'll see if they're clapping after. Yeah, we'll see after. Uh, but this is my, my good friend Mike, and I'm so glad that he's back here to share with you. So here he is. All right. Gentlemen, good morning. Oh, yeah. The whistles are totally appropriate, so thank you. Um, good morning. It is, I, I, and if you don't um, know me, my name is Mike Erie. I grew up in Ohio, came out here because of Eric Hurd. Uh, Eric, where are you? Okay, stand up, dude. Come on. Eric, you guys don't even know. So I was coming out to go to seminary at Biola. I met Eric at a church called Evie Free Fullerton. Uh, I moved back to pursue a, a lady that dumped me, and, um, which was, which, you know, I still am like, why? I mean, look at what she's missed out on, you know? And, um, and Eric um, came here and was, uh, invited me to be the college pastor here, and he's the reason we were 20 years here and that I met my wife. He and Debbie were family to me and my wife. He married us on this, in this room on what used to be the stage that was permanent up here. And, uh, man, it's just, I, I, I couldn't be more excited to see him and to see so many of you. Seriously, guys, it's so fun. It is, it is coming home in a real way. Um, I want to thank uh, Tim and the men's crew. Met with some of the leadership yesterday. I'm so, seriously, so excited about what, what's happening. And, I'm, and even in Ohio, I'm hearing about the great things that are happening at Mariners. I mean, tr- you know, as you know, nationally, these transitions don't happen like this. And so credit to elders and, and leaders and Kenton and Eric, uh, it has been, been really, really cool to watch from afar just about what, what, what God's doing here and then to hear yesterday about what God's doing in the ministry. So could not be more excited. I literally just wanted to, I want to spend 20 minutes just saying hi to each of you and catching up, but they wanted to talk about sex and that is my area of expertise. And so let's go to First Corinthians. I have three children, so you know. Three times, yes. First Corinthians. <laughs> now, I have given in my uh, in my short, very young life. I have given um, many talks on sexuality, and um, to some degree or another, I. You know, it's a topic that is so unbelievably relevant and live for us. But on the other hand, in Christian circles, it's not like we haven't heard the stuff that we're going to talk about. And, and so I was wrestling all week with, what do you do? Now, so it might be new for some of us, but, you know, if you're like me and you've been in this Jesus thing for a while, how do you approach the conversation where you've heard all the rules, you've heard the visions, you've heard the stories, you've heard the warnings, and yet it just still is a very real and live issue. All of that knowing hasn't done a lot to help. And so uh, instead of like doing a normal sort of preachy thing, like I I have notes 
because I, I want to present some ideas that aren't necessarily original to me, but uh, I want to try to answer that question uh, because I, I do think what is happening in our culture uh, with the Me Too movement, with the Church Too movement, with all of the scandals and the denominations and the abuse and the cover-up, doggone it, man. It, it shows that the way we have handled this conversation, not only it, it, it's been wrong, but it's actually been harmful to real people. It's not only to men, but to w- the women who've been abused, to the women that have been exploited, to the young men that have been, I mean, we, like, there is a great big rethink we have to do on this subject that's so much deeper than behavior, right? The big question when I was a college pastor is how far can you go? Right, which is, and, and I would always have an answer, and here's accountability groups, and it was all about managing your sin behavior, and we just realized that that's not the way of Jesus, and not that sin doesn't matter, of course it does, but just fighting the behavior battle isn't what changes behavior. So, with that, let's talk about sexuality. First Corinthians chapter six. How about that for an intro? First Corinthians chapter six again. If you're new and you're not terribly familiar with the Christian story, I would imagine you're at least familiar with the parts that say, don't do it. <laughs> right? It's dirty and it's awful and save it for the one you give your life to. You know, I mean, that kind of was the purity culture I grew up in. Um, and, and what we want to do is, is um, we want to unpack a bit of that story maybe in a slightly different way. So if you're new to the Bible, of course, this is going to have, you're going to have lots of questions to this, but thank you for being here. Thank you for just opening yourself up to a conversation like this. Paul here is addressing a church, and I know this is shocking. He's addressing a church that has some immaturity in it. It is absolutely surprising. I know we cannot relate, but this community in the first century was just crazy. And... (laughs) And they had slogans that they would say to each other theologically that Paul is now correcting. So, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. So he quotes their slogan back to them and then corrects it. So he, he says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, you say, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, and here he quotes Genesis, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now this kind of is where we want to dial in a little bit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually, and this is the key phrase, sins against their own body. Do you not know that you are... Uh, that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And let's close in prayer. Right? I mean, it, it's, I mean it's, not, it's not subtle. <laughs> but this phrase, he who sins sexually sins against 
his own body. That's a really interesting phrase because it's the only, I mean, in one sense, all sin is equal in the sight of God. It's sin. But Paul says there's something unique about sexual sin. It it, it exercises a disproportionate amount of formative power over us. In other words, it's not just a sin, like some abstract transgression of God's law, but it actually shapes us. All sin shapes us, but this disproportionately so. When he uses the phrase, you sin against your own body, it literally means it begins to distort your personhood. And, and, you know, I, I am, a, I am a, a, a man who was exposed to pornography at 11 uh, through these things called magazines. I don't know if some of you may have heard of them. Um, and and, uh, and that's, been my, that's been my issue the whole way through. And I have filters on everything and fight all the battles, but the temptation is, is always there. What I noticed about porn, and I, I want to read a couple of things. I'm going to quote a very long section is that like other sexual sin, it doesn't just, it's not just wrong, but it's formative. It, cha- it literally changes us. So, for instance, uh, porn, uh, porn forms us by rewiring our brains. Have you heard this science? It's unbelievable. There is a lot of neurology around the idea of neuroplasticity, the way our brains over the course of time change and adapt based on what we think, see, and do. When researchers compared brain scans of porn users with scans of non-users, they found that the more porn someone had used, the less the reward center of the brain activated when pornographic images were flashed on a screen. As a result... Dopamine addiction requires that more hardcore material is required to produce the same sexual stimulation. The reduction and changing of the dopamine centers in our brain, which oversees things such as planning, prioritizing, controlling impulses, results in reduced empathy and understanding for other people. It literally changes the way our brains work. Same way the exercise changes our bodies. And there, again, is an area of expertise. <laughs> One last paragraph. It also affects our sexual tastes. Porn usage correlates to less sexual and relational satisfaction with actual people. And for those of us who struggle, we know that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. Porn user builds up tolerance for sexual images. This means the pleasure of sexual discharge must be supplemented with increasingly aggressive releases and images. It alters actually what we want to watch. So when the scriptures talk about sexuality, it's not just that it's wrong, at least when it's expressed outside of the will of God. It's that it has incredible power. The fire of sexuality has the power to eradicate commitments and vows and religious devotion, right? And we all know this. So it's incredibly formative. And porn, I'm just using as an example, all right? It can be any sexual behavior. Now, what's happened is that there are several different ways in which our churches and our culture have dealt with the acknowledgement of the raging power of sex. 
and sexual desire. All right? So that first point was just, it forms us. And everyone said, amen. And it forms us disproportionately relative to the other sins that we wrestle with. Point number two is that there are different ways this topic has been approached, both by culture and by church. So I'm borrowing something from a guy named John Tyson, who is a pastor in New York. There are three F's. None of them are the bad ones. There are three F's that represent three different ways to relate to sexual desire. All right? First way. Are you ready? To fear it, baby. To repress it. To pretend it's not there. Godly men don't struggle with having sexual thoughts of other people. Right? Godly men aren't ever dissatisfied with the relationship and their marriage. Godly men would never, ever, ever consider having relations with someone who wasn't their spouse. And so on, and so on, and so on. Right? And the narrative, and this comes to us through church history. I mean, my goodness. That this is something to be feared. And we've all, I mean, if you're like me, this is, this is what we were raised in. It's way too powerful. You've got to be careful with it. Both of those statements are true. But the way it was painted was very negative and fear-based. So you have somebody like Origen, who very, very famous early church theologian, who because of his sexual struggles took the command <laughs> to if something is causing you to stumble, cut it off, to its logical conclusion when it came to lust. He actually did that. Or, or there was a fellow named Jerome. Jerome... My goodness, one of the most influential, he, he created something called the Latin Vulgate. It took him 30 years. And, um, and Jerome, I mean, unbelievably famous translator. It was the Bible that was used for a thousand years after he created this thing. It was unbelievable. But, but part of his story is that his learning of Hebrew was fueled by the sexual fantasies that he had and wanting to escape from them, which is, isn't that ironic? Don't you think? Hey, I'm really struggling with lust, so I'm going to translate the Bible. I love it. Absolutely love it. But, but he had a very warped sense of, of, of femininity and sexuality. He thought the only, the only good thing about marriage is it produces virgins. Okay. And, and that if you wanted, and, and literally, this is a, a transliterated quote from him, but if you wanted to ruin your life, you would find a wife. To which nobody said amen, but maybe a few secretly did. Now, <laughs> or Augustine, very famously Augustine said it was through the sexual act that original sin was passed. And that the fun part of sexuality was the sinful part. The only way to have godly sex for Augustine was... If it was with your wife for the purpose of procreation and you didn't enjoy it. Now, it sounds absurd to us, but that's the religious hangover we've had. It's very Greek. It's very Hellenistic. It's the idea that the, the body is separate from the soul and that we're not integrated people. And so we have to deny part of us to facilitate the spiritual part of us that the sexual parts of us get in the way, have to be resisted and fought to extreme measures. And this was the culture I was raised in. Absolutely. 
The moral calculus of this vision of fearing desire says willpower plus rules equals holiness. Right? That's what I was taught. Here's the standard. Live up to it and be pure. Anyone resonate with that? Absolutely. And I, I want to suggest, and maybe some of you will disagree with this, but I want to suggest that that formula has been a complete and utter failure. And we see that when you measure the rates of sexual sin in the church relative to outside the church. You see this in all the scandals that are exploding through all the denominations we see. We see, it, we see this everywhere, and I see it most of all in my own heart. So in response, now, are you guys with me so far? Is this making sense? All right. I can't tell because it's a talk on sex. Who's going to be whooping it up, you know? Um, so what our culture does in response to that, instead of fearing, Justin, Justin, focus. Instead of fearing desire, what's our culture say? Follow it, baby. Follow it. Of course. The greatest good in human flourishing today is the right to self-expression. Anyone who tries to restrict however it is that you want to express yourself is necessarily oppressive and whatever else. Right? This is literally the sexual ethic we have. It is desire plus consent equals freedom. That's the moral equation for our world. Right? And even consent gets tricky. But the idea, of course, is it's just another appetite, guys. And that's what Paul, Paul's dealing with that here when he says the food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The Corinthians were saying, yeah, it's just another appetite, right? You're hungry. There's breakfast. You're thirsty, there's stuff to drink. You're whatever, and there's whatever, right? And, and it makes complete sense. And the question I have is, does that moral equation lead to flourishing? When you look at our culture, do you see human beings flourishing in their sexuality for the sake of their freedom? Do you see that? Do you see it? We get a bit iffy. I get a bit iffy because there's a part of me that wants to believe that that actually looks awesome. And then I, I find myself in incredibly weird conversations with people who are confessing their sexual histories. And instead of freedom, they are so disillusioned. They can't even enjoy the sex that they started out pursuing. I mean, it's, the carnage is unbelievable. And the, the way the enemy gets after me is to regret I didn't have premarital sex. I should have. I missed out. That's how the enemy goes after me. And then when that happens, there's always someone who comes into my life who says, well, I did all of that. And it was awful. Because it formed me into a kind of person that I'm disgusted by. Now, whether or not you buy that, 
That's the ethic of the world, right? For the church, moral standards, try harder, holiness. But I think that results in a lot of failure. For the world, it's desire, follow it, plus consent, make sure you found someone willing, equals freedom. What we want to say, the third F, is that, no, 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 sexual desires can be formed in a certain way. We can use the formative power against it. Here's what I mean. Go to 1 Thessalonians, if you would. And if you don't know where that is, it's right before 2 Thessalonians. Yep, never gets old. That never gets old. See, for, for those of us who are Jesus followers, and this, man, this, this has been the biggest thing I've been learning. And this is so important, okay? We fight sexuality on entirely the wrong plane. We want to talk about sin and behavior, maybe even motive. God wants to talk about formation and the transformation of the human heart. And so what I found in groups and accountability and all of those sorts of things is it's very hard to keep the second in view. That what I'm asked in those groups is, hey, did you screw up this week? And it's the fear of being caught that either keeps me from it or maybe I admit it and minimize it or maybe I just lie. We want to come up with a, a vision of sexual formation that doesn't ever begin with lying. We want to come up with a vision of sexual formation and that's far more deep than just behaving the right way. Does that make sense? Because for the Christian, the question is not what am I doing or why am I doing it? The question is who am I becoming by what I'm doing? Do you see the big difference there? See, for me, I always thought, well, porn's wrong just because porn's wrong. But then I noticed porn also is to be resisted because of how it began to form and shape me. Now, I'm not assuming everyone here struggles with this. I'm just using that as the clearest example of the power of formation. All right, I am assuming most of us struggle with this, but that's a different story. So does Jesus give us a vision of sexual formation that's not grounded in fear, and that's not grounded in just following desires wherever they go. Because think about it, right? The church says, hey, you guys, you're angels, right? The way to follow Jesus is to deny that you have all this raging stuff happening in you, right? When you get 60 or 70, that, all that stuff fades away, doesn't it? It's not an issue anymore, right? When you're 20 and 30, the lie is, hey, if you just get married, everything's going to be awesome, and then those that live between the two lies are realizing, oh my goodness, we're in trouble. <laughs> right? There's a, and so there, there's a sense in which we must recapture. And again, there's no easy fix to this. But I just want to remind you of stuff you already know. Because this affects how we parent. And this affects how we talk to each other. And this affects how we talk to each other about this stuff. Because the church says, hey, you're angels. Right? You have a spiritual nature. Fight whatever is against, whatever gets in the way of the spiritual nature and spiritual life. Fight against that. I don't want to say it's wrong. The world, on the other hand, just thinks we're animals. 
We're just creatures of instinct that have no option other than just following right, the instincts and desires of our heart. And in Christian theology and anthropology, we're made of dirt and the spirit of God, which means, yes, there's a spiritual side, and it can't be divorced from the physical side, where we do have real physical impulses, and we're more than those real physical impulses. So whatever vision Jesus has, has to offer a way to process this that acknowledges, here's the reality of sexual brokenness, and at the same time, our desires are not our destiny. Does that make sense? So, did I read First Thessalonians yet? Okay. Excellent. I bring notes for, uh, for no reason, evidently. All right, for those of you wondering what God's will is for your life, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And just so you know, I mean, and this is the bummer, of course, sexual immorality, the phrase is pornea, which literally means all the sexual sins listed in Leviticus 18 and 19. You know what, guys? You should know this. Okay, you should have this stuff memorized. Okay? Oh, of course, of course, Luke's over there watching the trailer for Star Wars 9 while we're here fighting through the... 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, thank you very much. Jet lag is the thing in my brain right now. It is. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual morality. See previous note on pornea. That each of you should learn to control your own body. Wow. Now what's that? That's formation. That just doesn't happen. There, there are ways that we do this. But that's the, that's the image. Is that you can actually learn to control your body. I don't mean through self-effort. I don't mean through the cutting off of body parts. Right? The Christian, Christian vision is much different than that. And this is where we get hung up. We hear a verse like this and we just think, try harder. That's not what we're talking about. Because we've all tried harder. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we've warned you before. So what's the idea of formation? The idea of formation, of course, is that Ways and patterns of believing and living and thinking reinforce themselves for either good or bad. And so, when it comes to sexuality, we have to begin with a picture of sexuality that's so much different than the picture we've been given often by the church and certainly by the world. Make sense? So, three, any, any questions on this, by the way? I mean, I just want to make sure you're, you're tracking because I don't know how clear I'm being right now. I'm losing gallons of fluids, but I don't know if it's clear, all right? Which part? Oh, no, I think we can. But it's how do you begin that journey? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked that to clarify. No, I'm not invalidating 
Paul. <laughs> not, not at all. I, I'm saying that what Paul is speaking of is formation, but the way Americans hear that phrase is you should learn to control yourself. And I think that the way we read that is through the first grid. Moral standard plus willpower equals holiness. And I want to say I think there's a, there's a bigger conversation happening back here about how we even understand sexuality that then filters into how we see and read verses like that. Does that make sense? So that's a yes. That is an absolute yes. Not only does it make sense, it is compelling and clear. All right. Let me, let me, work, let me massage it a little more metaphorically, and then we'll see how this goes. <laughs> All right. So, my brothers, if we're going to talk about sexuality... We have to begin with the very simple declaration, and all of you will agree with this, but none of us were raised like this, that the Bible begins with an absolutely, unbelievably, earth-shatteringly declaration that it's good. And I don't mean to be crude or crass, but it's good to have a penis, that it's good to feel arousal, that it's good to feel release, that, that all of that stuff is a great gift. No one believes that, right? Because it, it feels so much like a curse. But, I mean, the rabbis, I mean, they just love this. What's the first command of the 613 commands of the Torah? Be fruitful and fill the earth. Right? The last I checked, there's only one way to do that. And last I checked, that way turns out to be pretty awesome. I mean, just think about that. It, we, we're so accustomed, and I know you know all the theology. I know you know it. But we're so accustomed to seeing this is the enemy's territory. So that we begin to pretend like any bodily urge is bad. And that's just not true. I mean, I get to watch my son like this. I was, I was it was very shame-based. But I get to watch my son. I get to have the first conversation with him. That's like, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. Like, what a gift. This is awesome. It's super powerful. It's super powerful. But it's amazing. See, the conversation never starts like that. Unless it's in some, you know, done in some cheesy way, like Christians should have the best sex ever, because, okay, whatever. And let's make sure we all have sex seven days in a row. And we'll do that in the name of Jesus. It's like, I've heard churches do this stuff. And you're like, okay. I don't think that's really capturing the vision we're after. So, first thing we say is, it is good. I mean, the only, the only conversation I had in church was, was a guy I didn't know sat me down when I was 12, and he walked me through something called the biological hand grenade ladder. And it was a drawing of a ladder. This is a true story. A ladder that had kissing on the bottom, and then intercourse up top. And, and, and then they had words like petting, okay, which I had no idea what that was. And so, this, so I'm pulled into a different room, one-on-one with some weird guy. And we go over, and the idea is the more you go up the ladder, the more explosive the consequences. Right? And that was the vision of sexuality. You think that's enough for a 12 or 13-year-old boy? You think that's enough for a 30, 40, 50-year-old man? No. 
So the scripture starts with the absolute and unequivocal declaration, it is good. That desire for sex is holy. The aroused state isn't sinful. And it's even weird to say these things, but you never hear them, right? I mean, how do we, how do we learn to bring Jesus into those moments when we'd kill to look at porn? Is Jesus not Lord there too? Does his kindness not lead us to repentance there too? Like, I just don't even think about these things. So the massive and most important declaration, of course, is that it's good. And if you doubt that, read Song of Solomon, right? We preached on this years and years and years ago. But it is not a metaphor for Israel and God or God and the church. This is erotic love poetry, and you can't really hide that. And it's even more explicit in Hebrew, and it's in the Bible. Number two, a vision of sexuality has to include the idea that it's more than just a genital expression. Right? Because we believe we're whole people, man, sexuality is social, sexuality is resonant, it's connecting. In fact, Time Magazine has this incredible, <laughs> it's Time Magazine for crying out loud. Magazines are these things that, I don't know, they're, they're a paper. Um, I need to read you this quote. I love this. This was written in 2004. Of all the splendidly ridiculous, transcendently fulfilling things humans do, it is sex with its countless permutations of practices and partners that most confounds understanding. What in the world are we doing? Why are we so consumed by this? The impulse to procreate may lie at the heart of sex, but it's merely the starting point of an astonishingly varied Banquet. Bursting from our sexual center is a whole spangle, which I didn't know was a word. Whole spangle of other things. Art, song, romance, obsession, rapture, sorrow, companionship, love. All playing an enormous role in everything from our physical health to our emotional health to our politics to our communities, our very lifespans. Why should this be so? Did nature just simply, man, I'm sweating so much. Because of your question, I feel such pressure. Whoa! Did nature simply overload us in the mating department, hot-wiring us for sex that is so central to the survival of the species, and never mind the sometimes sloppy consequences? Or is, and this is the quote I love, or is there something smarter and subtler at work? Some larger interplay among sexuality, life, and what it means to be human? As followers of Jesus, we believe we are whole people, and sex is a whole-bodied, whole-person act, correct? So... One of the reasons why we care about the topic, it's not just that it forms us towards bad, but it can also form us towards good. That sex for a Jesus follower is not meant to be a place of exploitation, but of meaning, of safety, of significance, validation. And not that we're all there all the time, but the picture we get in the scriptures is something far more magnificent than just the erotic images that flash through our computer, right? The idea of pornography isn't that we see too much. It's that we see far too little. When you divorce sex from every other context, right, you fundamentally change what's happening.
And so we see if, if we are going to be people formed by Jesus, we first acknowledge that our bodies are good things. Our bodies are of our bodies are good things. Right? We have to start there. We have to tell our children this. Right? We have to be reminded of this over and over and over. Being attracted to someone else is not wrong. Right? Being sexually aroused for whatever reason, not in and of itself a bad thing. We have to learn to be at home in human bodies that are sometimes really weird. We have to start there. We have to abandon the Gnosticism of our 1,000-year heritage. Second place we start is to be reminded, of course, that no matter what the world tells us, sex is a whole person act, right? And we see this, even physiologically, the chemicals released when two people have intercourse, meant to bond you together. I mean, you just cannot deny this is what it's for. Thirdly, this is our testimony to a watching world. You want to know how the early Christians won the Roman Empire? They did three things that were incredibly wacky. I mean, and we have writings where the Romans are commenting on how wacky the Christians are. One was they were financially irresponsible. They, I mean, two, they, were, they took care of everybody's poor and sick, regardless of whether or not they were Christian. And third, they were sexually faithful. And the reason, I think, that the church really isn't welcomed at many conversations and culture about sex is simply because we haven't kept our own house clean. And so when our own house is dirty, it's much easier to look at the world and legislate against that. But as Jesus says, right, the sin in our eyes is a log. The sin in everyone else's eye is a speck. And Peter says, judgment begins with the house of God. So, what am I trying to say? A couple of thoughts. First, no doubt, and no one needs to be told the combustive power of sexuality. We are typically, we've been people in in an evangelical church community that look at that combustive power and we're afraid of it. We don't see it as a gift. We see it as a curse. We see it as something to be resisted and fought against. And, and certainly there are parts of it that are to be fought against. No question. But the idea that we can just know the rules and try hard to follow them, we just see the carnage of that. Our world says, okay, follow the desires then. Just follow them. And we see the carnage of that. What's the way of this is actually the formation of sexual desire. What does that mean? What well, means first having a vision of sex that's much bigger than our culture's vision. That includes that it's good. That includes that it's pointing to something bigger, right? For Jesus, right? And for Paul, sexuality pointed to what God is up to in the world. Sex was actually a sign of what God's ultimate purpose is for human history, Right, This incredible union of male and female, not only to each other, but humanity to God. But secondly, sexual formation looks like coming out of hiding. Because my brothers, there is simply no way for us to hide and be formed in a Jesus-shaped way. And so there have to be places where kindness leads us to repentance. 
right? I mean, Tim's been telling me about these rogue groups that you've got where people are just utterly ruthless. Because I've found in church, it's very much okay to have struggled, right? I used to struggle with this. It's much different to say, well, last night I actually was so mad at my wife, I went into my office, shut the door, and indulged in whatever, right? It's a whole different thing. My brothers, they're half, I mean, the gospel starts with us believing that we're loved in our badness. And so the only way you learn that is by bringing that stuff into the light. And that begins the whole reframing conversation of how you see it and what it is. And the recognition that we open ourselves up to being formed by God even in these ways. Now, before I wrap up, any questions on that? Except for this guy over here. Which, which, of course, was a great question. Because I'm seeing some puzzled looks. So I want to make sure I understand why the puzzle made. It could be, this is so epic. Yes, sir. Yes, I should, have, I should have mentioned that word. Yes. And you know what, sir? It is all over the notes I did not use. <laughs> You're absolutely right. That is the word. That is the word. Because, I mean, even the Latin word sex, right, comes from the idea of severing something. And, and there's, there's thought in Genesis that the original Adam, the original human, wasn't male and female, but was both. And then got separated into male and female later in the story. In other words, that sex then is the reunification of something that had been split. And so... When it talks about, you know, um, that word is the word akad, which is used of God, God's oneness. And God's oneness, of course, is a oneness in community. And what sexuality? I mean, if you want to go deep, I mean, this is, this is where this goes. Like, sex is pointing to what God is like and what he's doing in the world. Oh, now we're preaching. Oh, I should have started with that then, evidently. Yes, sir. All right. All right. Let me pray. Love you guys. Thanks. Lord Jesus, um, I can only speak for me, but I so desperately want to have a picture of sexuality that honors you, that is thankful, that that is not afraid, and yet... Uh, becomes formed around the idea that even in this area, as disciples of Jesus, we can have our sexuality formed to be more and more like him. And Lord, uh, my prayer is simply that you would open up that possibility for us and that as a result, um, that many of us would, that that's, the, that's the place this starts. And the recognition then that we invite Jesus even to those most broken places and experience his grace, his truth. And then, le- then we're led, of course, deeper in to what it is to repent. So, Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself, that you would show us how much you love us, and that you would remind us of the gr- goodness and grace of the gospel. That we do not have to get this figured out before we're loved by you. 
We don't, have, we don't have to have our addictions taken care of first. We don't have to have our doubts answered first. We can come to you and you receive anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And so we call and call and call again. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, gentlemen. Thank you. So you've got, you've got some table discussions, which is awesome. So the question I want you to answer at your tables is, what is your greatest sexual failure? No, I'm kidding. I would never. I'd never. That'd be awesome. Imagine. That's, that's man camp right there. Um, no. <laughs> Could you imagine? You guys were like, ugh. I, oh, my wife is calling. Um, now, just a few minutes. Tim, come up here. And it's, what did you think of all that? What did you agree with? What did you disagree with? What wasn't clear? And I'd love to have you discuss just a few minutes what it was that you heard and what it was that you thought about what you heard. Sound good? Yes, sir. Intimacy? The, from the gentleman in the back? He just said the word intimacy is the word you're looking for here. Yep. And I said, yep. You really didn't miss much on that one. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. It's all in my notes. Yes, you can look at my notes. Tim, you want to come up? What? Oh, okay. Table discussion, gentlemen. Ha! Have fun with that.